Dear Father, the Word is Yours. Oh, we bumble and fumble around with it, and you, you know all about that. And I always feel bad for those times when perhaps you have to kind of blush and apologize to the angels for what came out. But we're here. We, we can only be what we are, human children of the Father. We'd like you to have full access to our minds over these next few moments. The moments will fly by, but don't let the Word fly by. Let the Word fly in and go deep. We must get it straight, please. And may Jesus be the one who truly today is lifted up in this place. We pray in His name. Amen. As we launch our new millennial mission as a campus congregation, I'm going to ask you a question. Now, I want you to answer this. Put your, put your thinking cap on. I have people come up to me after first year and say, I remember. I want you to go back. Some of you go all, back, all the way back to childhood, perhaps. Do you remember the first time you took seriously the great gospel commission? Remember Jesus' words, go into all the world and share the good news of me. You remember the first time, first time you took that commission seriously? I will never forget as long as I live, ever, that day. And remember it as if it were yesterday. I thought I was witnessing for Jesus. Maybe not, but let me share the story with you. You know, I was born in Japan, grew up there in the land of the rising sun. Every summer, missionary families from all denominations, it's quite an ecumenical event, would come to a beautiful little mountain lake. Its azure waters were named Lake Nojiri. We'd come there summer after summer. The Baptists would come and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists and the Catholics. We'd all come to have some respite from the muggy heat of Japan. Well, this particular summer that I'm remembering, with my kid brother Greg, who, by the way, is pastoring the Union College Church right now. He's a great preacher. We've been trying for months now to get him over here for a week of prayer. We think we may have him lined up in a year. Looking forward to having him here. But Greg, Greg and I, and there were, there's a little, uh, our cabin perched on the side of the mountain, just around the corner on the hillside, another Adventist family named the Clarks, Doug and Dave Clark, so we're buddies with them. And in between us, wouldn't you know it, there's a little Southern Baptist cabin, uh, uh, the Kellys. So you have, you, have, you have six little boys, four Adventists, two Baptists. And we had, we had just a glorious summer, frolicking in the water, playing, doing the whole thing that little boys do, except for one small fly in the ointment, and that was this. It inevitably, every day would come up. When we were playing with these Baptist boys, it would come up. Ha, 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 they would say, you are vegetarian. Ha, 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 you eat rabbit's food. Now, that was back when Adventists were. And so, we, we, you know, we, yeah, they, they're right. They're right. But, you know, that was back before there was a whole lot of scientific corroboration for the natural, organic lifestyle. You go pull out the Harvard and Andrews studies today and it's all proved. We didn't have those. We didn't know what to do. So all we could do was suffer for Jesus. Every day, suffer for the Lord. We're doing this for you, Jesus. Well, one day, we'd had enough. Well, I... You know, Doug, my little older Doug Clark friend, he's now working in the health system on the West Coast. Doug came prepared. All right, these boys brought it up again. Ha, 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 you are vegetarian. Doug said, <clears throat> threw back his little Adventist shoulders, cleared his throat and said, Fellas, do you know that General Douglas MacArthur is a Seventh-day Adventist? But you could have heard those Southern Baptist jaws hit their chests. This is back in the 50s, folks. And General Douglas MacArthur, some of you too young perhaps to know, but you see the picture on the screen. He was, uh, he was a household name. He was revered by the Japanese during, you know, right after the liberation. Whoa! You know... 
My job flew open. My parents had never told me that either. How come they didn't tell me? General Douglas MacArthur's an Adventist. And what is more, Doug went on to announce, he is a vegetarian. Those little Baptist eyes popped out. I said, listen, I don't, I don't need much of a cue. This is the time to start witnessing. Ha, 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 MacArthur is an Adventist and a vegetarian. Felt so good to win one for Jesus at last. Well, we chuckle about it. Since that time, of course, we've all grown up. And I have learned, having grown up, that that great victory on behalf of the kingdom of Christ was based upon one small but significant error. And that is, I learned eventually that General Douglas MacArthur was not a Seventh-day Adventist. And I read William Manchester's great biography of that great man, the American Caesar. And as far as I can tell from the biography, he wasn't even a vegetarian. What happened was my friend Doug got General Douglas MacArthur mixed up with Uncle Arthur of the bedtime stories. And he thought every night, oh, Dad, another story from the general, please. Now, some of you don't even know who Uncle Arthur is. I've got to realize that uh, you had to be a baby boomer to know that. But, uh, yeah, you know Uncle Arthur who wrote Arthur Maxwell, his son Mervyn. You say, Stanley, that would be uh, Mervyn Maxwell's uh, granddaughter. That would have been Arthur Maxwell's great-granddaughter sitting on the stage just a few moments ago, ladies and gentlemen, talking about coincidence. Well, my friends, here. By the way, you know, if you, ever meet, if you ever meet anybody with the last name of Kelly, I wish you would ask them, are you Baptist? If they say yes, apologize for us, please, because that was terrible the way we did that. They never brought it up again. Never, 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 never. Well, my friends, the fact of the matter is the church may not have General Douglas MacArthur as it begins its new millennial mission, but hallelujah, the church has the king, a king named the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we renew that visit to our mission as a campus congregation, it seems imperative that we go to Jesus and ponder the most dramatic expression of His own personal mission statement ever expressed by His own lips, ever, ever, ever. I want to go to that with you. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 12. It's Tuesday evening. The long, lingering shadows that tumble onto the white marbled floor seem to breathe a sigh of relief. At last, a million sandaled feet are almost gone. It's Tuesday evening. Off in the distant west, the twilight sky casts its purple haze in the direction of the golden dome and those high, lifted-up bronze colonnades. The pungent savor of incense and burnt lamb permeates the temple air, leaving this trailing wisp of white against the violet sky. It is Tuesday evening. Day is done. Gone the sun. The almost melancholy wail of that twisted ram horn called the shofar now taps out the final movements of the sunset liturgy. It's Tuesday evening. And so, scurrying about their sacerdotal duties, those white-clad, tightly-turbaned priests move through their final sunset motions. It's Tuesday evening. The three courtyards, one for the men and then one for the women and then one for the Gentiles, are now rapidly emptying. But still an inside crowd seems hesitant to leave. And in their midst, attracted as they are, stands a young man. He's obviously known blue-collar labor. He looks rugged. He's thin. He's known hard life and hard work. 
But it is as if this young man himself is almost loath to leave these sacred precincts, for well he knows tonight that when he removes his sandals from this white marbled floor, he will never again in this life stand in that inner sanctum. It is Tuesday evening, and as the crowd is preparing to leave, hurrying up to the perimeter of the crowd comes a handful of them. Obviously, they've got to be strangers, pointed noses, darkened eyes, brows, foreign garb. It all identifies them as Greeks. Although the sacred manner with which they hurried past the distant altar indicates that they worship the God of the Jews. The whole city has been abuzz with the fiery headlines since Sunday that this young man... Self-proclaimed king, the headlines had declared, had come riding into town and the masses have coronated him. These Greeks, strangers in town, have heard the stories. They have recounted the incidences of healings and resurrections and something deep within them tells them they have got to find this man. They are seekers after the true God. They are worshipers within the Jewish system. They must find the one the crowds call Jesus. It is Tuesday evening when our story today transpires. Before we begin to read, I've got to tell you, fitting indeed that as it was in the beginning, even so it was in the ending. Just as wise men came from the east to find Him after His birth, so wise men now come from the west in search of Him before His death. And I can't miss the pastoral opportunity to tell you, it occurs to me, it is always a wise man. It is always a wise woman who goes looking, seeking for this Jesus. Let's read it together. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 12. I'm in the New King James Version. Better get used to it. Kind of excited about this. John, chapter 13, uh, chapter 12, rather, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Some believe that by John's choice of the word worship rather than partake, they didn't come to partake of the Passover. They're half proselytes. They're not all the way included in, the, in, in Judaism yet. But they have come up to worship at the feast in Jerusalem. Then, verse 21, they came to Philip, Hellenized name. Maybe they picked him because, hey, he's got a Greek name like us. They picked Philip. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Jesus. It is the quiet cry. It is the silent prayer of the world this very morning. Is it not? I mean, you think about it. We wish to see Jesus. Could it be that if the deepest longing, if the, if the deepest hunger of the human heart today could somehow be articulated, it would always, no matter the language, it would always be translated into this plea, this prayer. I want to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. I was sitting all alone minding my own business at the airport in Orlando with a cup of hot chocolate and a newspaper waiting to catch a plane back here to home. When all of a sudden, I noted out of the corner of my eye, a woman came and sat in the table caddy corner from me. I go on reading my newspaper. Pretty soon, she's knocking on my cafe table. I look up, yes. She said, may I borrow the stocks and bonds section of the paper? Well, I, I never used to read that until we got on this new retirement plan. I, I, I said, sure, you can take it. Can you believe what we have to do now? I said, sure, take it, keep it. Go back to reading, pretty soon. She said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. She said, are you a, are you a priest? I said, oh, I look Protestant, don't I? I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. Oh, she wanted to confess. 
She did not want to confess for herself. She wanted to confess for her friend. You see, she was a, a physician's assistant. Came every year to the American Diabetics Association annual convention in Orlando, Florida. She has a friend from Nevada that she would meet every year in Orlando. But that friend, though married, when that friend got on the plane in, somewhere in Nevada, that wedding ring came off and that friend would party till the sun came up every night as if she had never exchanged a marital vow in her life. This, uh, this friend of hers starts pouring out her heart and says, Oh, Pastor, what can I do to help my friend? She's going to destroy herself and destroy her marriage. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, you don't need a chance encounter in some airport somewhere to come to grips with the reality that our whole nation, our whole world, suffers from this gnawing, this numinous longing, a hunger. They don't know what it is. Why do you think they party till sunup? Because there's something that's got to get filled and it never, never gets filled. They want to see Jesus. They don't know it. We wish to see Jesus is the cry of this planet. It just doesn't know. That's the, that's the way you express that longing. You know, the Academy Awards, what, was last Sunday night. I didn't see it. We're driving back from Florida. But you know, there they are in all of their glittering, glittering glory. The queens and kings of Hollywood. Wouldn't you just love to walk into that and say, pull the plug on those television cameras for one minute. I want to talk to this group. 3,000, 5,000 of them. Look at those masks. Manicured to the hilt. And say, hey, listen, guys, do you know what you want? You have been trying. You have been seeking. You have been thirsting for years. If only you could find Jesus. Everything you've dreamed of, you could have. And give an altar call right there. Why not? We wish to see Jesus. It is a heart cry of a planet headed for destruction today. I'd like to go down tonight. Oh, wouldn't you? Final Four down in Indianapolis. Whoa, Michigan State, go! If we could go down there, pull the plug on those television cameras, say, hey, hold it, hold it, 50,000 people in the Hoosier Dome. Listen, all this screaming and noise, behind it all, how many here have a longing for something that will last forever? A friendship that will never let you down? A ticket to eternal life, all wrapped up with a God of this universe? How many here would like it? Come forward now. I wonder how many would come forward. The cry of the human heart, Today, tonight, we wish to see Jesus. I tell you what, that old church father, Augustine, was absolutely right when he penned the words in his confessions. Our hearts are restless till they find rest in Thee. There's a God-shaped vacuum within the human breast today. Now, we wish to see Jesus. Oh. All right, well, the story goes on. Verse 22 and Philip came. So they come to Philip. They want to see Jesus. And what does Philip do? Stay here. All they want to do is see Jesus. But Philip does what we do. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Wouldn't it be embarrassing? There's a world out there crying out, we wish to see Jesus. And wouldn't it be embarrassing if in fact, all the while, we're in here talking to ourselves? That's exactly what Philip does. They want to see Jesus. I, I want to go talk to Andrew. They talk to themselves. They talk to Jesus. But they've got a crowd here that wants to see Jesus. Oh, my. If the cry of the Greeks reflects the cry of this world, then the response of Philip captures the crisis of this church. Here we are, dialoguing, discussing, deliberating, debating among ourselves, furiously, futilely, far too often, because who's listening to ourselves except ourselves? And all the while, this numinous, unnamed, subliminal longing, we want to see Jesus. You say, come on, Dwight, I don't think the world really wants to see Jesus. You're crazy. It does. 
Do you think it's an accident that Hollywood, our national news weeklies, television, radio talk shows, why do you suppose Jesus keeps showing up in those venues? Newsweek magazine, just last week. Why does he keep showing up? You say, oh, this is just Christians talking to each other. Hardly. Most of the entertainment and media barons are Jews. There is a public curiosity that often masks a private longing. We wish to see Jesus. Hey, these are the people we work with. There's some of them right on this campus. They're going to school with you. These are the people we do business with every single day of our lives. Hunger. How do you know? You ever stop long enough to look in those eyes? You ever ask that person, really, how are things going? We wish to see Jesus. They tell us. And we say, oh, no, no, no. Hey, come back. No, 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 we can't. You see, we're, we're going to church because that's the only place we're comfortable publicly talking about Jesus. So if you really want to see Jesus, then you better go to our church. Come on. What is this? We wish to see Jesus. They beg. Hey, 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 hold it, hold it. Well, we'd like to help you, but you see, we have a church to run and a theology to defend and a budget to raise and an institution to maintain and children to educate and a world to save someday. So call us again some other time. We wish to see Jesus now. The cry of the world, the crisis of the church, What you find on April 1, you can find in John 12. Nothing's changed over the centuries, has it? Which is why we can be very grateful that the story does not end with the cry or the crisis, but moves on to the Christ. I love this picture of Jesus, by the way. Because Jesus could have said, hey, Andrew, go back to him. Come on, Philip, go back, go back. But Jesus said, no, they want me, I'll go myself. I tell you what, if there's a hungry heart here for Jesus today, if there is a life that is longing for the Master to walk your way, all you have to do is cry the words out, I want to see Jesus, and Jesus will be there. Can't find a human to represent Him? That's okay. He's not stymied. He can still pretty much take care of Himself. Thank you. You need Jesus, you cry out. Jesus Himself will come to you. And so Jesus begins that coming to them. I love this. This is verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What Jesus is saying is, hey, hey, it's time. It's time. It's very interesting. I hadn't noted this until last week. Very interesting that four times before this, in the Gospel of St. John, four times, Jesus has gone out of His way to declare, my hour is not yet. Four times before this. My hour is not yet. Four times. But beginning with this statement, there will be four new confessions, and the confessions will all say, the hour has come. Four times. Always in the shadow now of the Calvary. The hour has come. Christ's whole life was headed to, to, to Calvary, to the cross. It wasn't near the cross. It's not my hour. His whole life can be summarized in Calvary. The hour has come, Jesus says. I love that. Let's put it up there on the screen again. Verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And because the hour is now at hand, Jesus speaks what will become, get this, the most dramatic, the most compelling expression of His personal mission statement you can find anywhere in Scripture. Drop down to verse 32. Here it is. Wow! Look at this. Red letter edition should be in red. And I, Jesus now directly to the Greeks, and I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Mark it in your Bible. Mission statement of Christ. Circle it. That's His mission statement. So, by the way, since we're considering our own millennial mission, let the record show as we commence it that His words do not read. And pioneer, if pioneer is lifted up, pioneer will draw all people to me. 
The words do not even read, and Andrews. If Andrews is lifted up, Andrews will draw all people to me. Nope. doesn't even read, and the Seventh-day Adventist church, if we can just exalt the Adventist church and it's lifted up, it will draw all people to me. No, no, no. Jesus is unequivocally clear. And I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to me. Which, by the way, puts Jesus and anybody who chooses to follow Him smack dab in conflict with Fortune 500 companies. Now, there are a lot of you that go to the School of Business here. You all know about Fortune 500, the top companies, money-making companies in the United States. All right? Fortune 500. You know what? I can tell you every Fortune 500 company's mission statement. I can give it to you right here. Ford Motor Company. This is their mission statement. Ford Motor Company, it goes like this. And Ford, if Ford is lifted up, Ford will draw all customers unto itself. That's the Ford mission statement. The one for Chevrolet, by the way, is identical. And so for Mountain Dew. And so for Philip Morris. Speaking of tobacco companies, you know what? Several years ago, the government came to tobacco companies. Hallelujah, they did this. They said, no more, no more advertising on television. You can't get a whiff on there. By the way, the, the tobacco companies, where are they putting it all now? Putting it all in the programming now. But they were back then, they said, whew, okay, no more on television. What we'll do is masterful strategy. They began to sponsor major sport events so that the same cameras that were banned to show them before are now sweeping across sporting events. Look up there on the screen. Marlboro, Indy 500. Oh, they're no dummies. Not in the tobacco industry because they have a mission. And that mission is to get their name in front of every human being possible. Every advertising executive in the world worth his or her salt knows that your mission statement and advertising strategy must read, and we, if we are lifted up, we will draw all people to us. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not our mission statement. That's the Fortune 500 strategy. But sadly enough, many a church has fallen for that fool's gold. The Jesus words... It shall not be so with you are a jarring reminder that the church of Christ belongs to another kingdom. In fact, I love this title. I got this from Mennonite pastor, turned sociologist, got his PhD in sociology, wrote the book, The Upside-Down Kingdom. It's a biting and prophetic analysis comparing the radical teaching of Jesus with the social and economic mores of our society today. His name, Donald Crabill. Get the book. It's now in its second edition. The Upside-Down Kingdom. I want to go to that book for a moment and let's read a line or two. The Gospels portray the kingdom of God as inverted or upside-down in comparison with both ancient Palestinian and modern ways. The Gospels do not, however, see the kingdom as geographically or socially isolated from the rest of the society. Jesus doesn't plead for social avoidance or withdrawal, nor does He assume the kingdom and world are divided neatly into separate realms. Now, church over here and world over here. Now, come on, it's all together. In fact, I like how He puts this. Kingdom action takes place in the middle of the societal ballpark. Major League Baseball is beginning. We can all picture a ballpark. Everything that happens, happens in the heart of the ballpark. But it's a different game. Kingdom players follow new rules. They listen to another coach. Kingdom values challenge patterns of social life taken for granted in modern culture. Kingdom habits don't mesh smoothly with dominant cultural trends. They may, in fact, look foolish. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no question that the kingdom you and I have been called to is an upside-down kingdom. Just how upside-down, Jesus makes painfully clear. Look at verse... Let's go back to 32 and then... Read 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. 
This he said, signifying by what death he would die. There is no Fortune 500 strategy here. The mission of Christ is so upside down that in order to live, you have to die. In order to win, you've got to lose. That is totally upside down from the Fortune 500. The cry, the crisis, the Christ, and now the cross. And I'll tell you what, church, it's because the cross is at the heart of Christ's mission that the church has such a difficult time following Him in this generation. We simply do not want to lose ourselves. I'm talking about the Seventh-day Adventist church now. I know how tempting it is for a small little denomination like ours to beat our own drum and toot our own horn in hopes that the church will, that the world somehow will wake. Hey, yo, wow, love them Adventists. Hoping against hope that we'll win attention. But how could Jesus be any clearer? The solitary mission of all of us who would follow Him is to lift him up before the world. Come on, guys. Why, why in the end would we want it any other way? I mean, do you, do you know of a church that can save anybody? You know of a church that has any part? You know a congregation? Know a university that can draw anybody? Really, be honest. I'll tell you what happens. When people start looking at the church, it happens in this church and it happens in other congregations as well. You look at the church too closely, you are liable to become disillusioned and disappointed. It cannot be... Uh, the mission of a church cannot be lift yourself up. Tell the world about Adventists. What, are we crazy? Adventists can't save the world. Jesus is unequivocal. Tell the world about me. Lift me up. I'll do the drawing. The tragedy is, we, we think it, we're on the line. I mean the story about General Douglas MacArthur. What are we doing? We're trying to win one. Win one. Using ourselves. You know, you can win a mind, but you'll never win a heart that way. Never. Never. I, if I be lifted up. I just read a piece by Kathleen Norris, author of the celebrated books Dakota, Cloister Walk, and Amazing Grace, in which she describes the pain of returning to Christianity only to watch the little Presbyterian church she joined split over some internal controversy. Churches are messed up, people. You can't look to a church. You can't lift a church up. I tell you what, the Pope, bless his soul, Contrary to what he asserted recently in his day of repentance, liturgy, and prayer, the church is not immaculate and perfect without need of repentance. It is a game of semantics to suggest that the children of the church need to repent, but not the church itself. There are times when the institution of the church itself needs to repent for what it has administratively done. There are times when the church must repent because churches are fallible. That's why Jesus is clear. And I, if I be lifted up. I will draw all peoples to me. Mark it well. We belong to an upside-down kingdom where losing us is the best way of lifting Him. Best way. Which is why I'm very grateful for the mission statement that has been adopted by this campus congregation. For it calls us to do just that. Lift Jesus up. And as I've already said, I'm really excited about this. I wish you'd pull your little uh, bulletin out again. I love this logo. You know... Uh, Robert Mason, who teaches in our graphics and design department here at the university, designed this. Claudia Davison, head of our communication team, worked this through with her team. This, I, I just, hallelujah, thank you folks for making this possible because it captures. In fact, let's put it up on the screen, those of you watching on television. Look at this mission statement. Logo. This is the logo now. You know what it is? It's a portrayal of people. And you look on the, on the bulletin, you'll see it. It's a portrayal of people of all colors. Not just one person, people who are joined together within the Gothic-shaped 
window that represents Pioneer Memorial. People, notice this, people who are ignited by the triune flame of Father, Son, and Spirit. They're a community of Christ that constantly reaches out beyond the church to the world. See, the hands are never kept inside. They're always outside. They're in both. A people with a wide-open embrace of Calvary. They obviously have been to the cross because their arms are outstretched, just like Calvary's welcoming embrace. And they now know that once you go to the cross, you turn around to the world and you do the same thing that happened to you. You love unconditionally. This is a people that knows. Embraced by the cross. They know that when their arms reach out, they're in the shape of an open Bible. Did you see that? They're in the shape of an open Bible. Because the Bible is the heart of this journey. But notice their hands. Their hands are always pointing upward from whence cometh the blessed hope of Christ's soon return. I'm telling you, I love this logo. You juxtapose it right beside our mission statement. And there, there, there's the journey, our millennial mission. In fact, let's put the words on the screen. Forward on our knees. How's it go? Reading our lives. What's the next one? Reflecting His love. Reaching our world for the imminent return of Jesus. We sang the word just a moment ago, composed, the, the music composed by Ken Logan. What does it all mean, folks? Cut it, to the, cut it to the bottom line right here. What does it all mean? It means this. That if, the only way this millennial mission will work, if we will go about lifting up Jesus, it is assured that this mission statement will be fulfilled. It cannot be fulfilled any other way. All five components only work when you lift up Jesus. Oh, by the way, congregational landscapes are strewn with mission statements that have been voted but never embraced. That's why we put it to music. That's why you're going to see this logo every time you come into this church. It's going to be on our new station. You're going to see it everywhere. Why? Because it's got to be a part of our corporate psyche. Lift up Jesus. Every component of that, of that mission statement is about lifting up Jesus. When we were down over spring break at, uh, with Karen's mom's, at Karen's mom's place in Panama City Beach, I'm telling you, they're going all day long up and down the beach. These tiny little Cessnas. And you know what they're dragging behind them? They're dragging a banner. They're dragging a sign, a flag. You know, eat here, shop there. And for a lot of spring breakers down there, AT&T, call home, collect. Why do they do it? Because they want to get that message up there. Hold it high over your head. In fact, one day, here comes this huge orange blimp. Monster.com. We go for finding new work. Monster.com. Back and forth. Why do they do it? Because they know if they, they fly it high so that all the world can see. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. That's our mission statement. Our mission calls us all five components and fly the colors of your personal commitment to Christ. Hey, for Pete's sake, quit being embarrassed about being a Christian. What, what is this? Why is this that we have? Well, you know, where do you go? I go to the high school. Where, where do you go? Andrews Academy. What, what is this? <laughs> I had to pick out the musicians here. What, what is this? Come on. You a Christian? Yep. You believe in Jesus? Yep. See your Lord? Yes, sir. He Savior? Yes, ma'am. Unashamed. Fly the colors high. These companies, Fortune 500 companies, are absolutely unashamed. Everywhere you turn, boom, 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 they're hitting you. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wish it were Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But it can't be for us. Fly the colors high. I read a piece. The, the latest issue of Christianity Today. You know that I love Philip Yancey. By the way, he's on my prayer list. I pray for him. Brilliant writer. He wrote the last page editorial this time for Christianity Today. And it's a piece in which he's announcing to all his readers that he has recently turned 50 years old. Which is a very old, old age to be until you're there, I have a feeling. So he's 50. And he's telling, hey, you know, after I turned 50, he said, I went to a doctor. I went to my physician, complete physical checkup. 
Then he said, I decided I need a spiritual checkup as well. And so he found a spiritual director, sat down with that director, kind of asked questions and, and helped him to reflect on his journey with Jesus. And he said, I want to share with you ten lessons from that retreat. Ten lessons that I've learned. Number eight of the ten. I want to put it because it speaks to a, to a university congregation like ours. Number eight of the ten. Don't be ashamed. Yancey is writing. Then he quotes Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul told the Romans. Then he's talking about himself now. Why do I speak in generalities when strangers ask me what I do for a living and then try to pin down what kind of books I write? What do you do? I, I write books. What kind of books? <clears throat> books. Well, what kind of books? Why don't you just say it, Philip? Christian books. See? He said, why am I so ashamed? Let's go on. Why do I mention the secular schools I attended before the Christian ones? Well, where'd you go to school? Well, I went to the uh, University of uh, Indiana for my graduate work. Where'd you go before that? Well, Andrews. Why is it, he writes, that whenever people come to us, it's, oh, the Christian part is just pushed to the side. I don't want them to know. I just talk, yeah, hey, I'm like you. No, no. Living as we are on the doorstep of eternity, this is not the time for us to be ashamed of our Savior and friend, Jesus. This is the right time to fly the colors high. Fly it high. Lift Him up. Lift Him up. Well, maybe it's time. And this mission statement that calls us to lift Him up over and over again, maybe it's time for us to be open, to be proud, riding a bus, riding a plane, doing business, in a committee. You know what? What is wrong with bringing up the fact that you have Christian convictions? Everybody around the table is a Christian. Well, go ahead and mention yours. You think that by bringing that up, it makes you look like you're greater. Than... No, no, no. Just say, you know, I'm really wrestling with this. I wonder if anybody's looked at this. What's wrong? But our pioneer mission statement is all about lift him up, lift him up. I found this mission statement 100, written 100 years ago that maybe is, ought to be juxtaposed right beside ours. Christ crucified... Talk it, pray it, sing it, and it will break and win hearts. This is the power and wisdom of God to gather souls for Christ. So our mission statement, folks, is talk, talk about Jesus, sing about Jesus, pray about Jesus. Lift Him up. Lift Him up. To the cry and the crisis, we must bring the Christ and the cross forward on our knees. Reading our lives, reflecting His love, reaching our world for the imminent return of Jesus. I want to say in closing that after a series of meetings this summer and fall with our pastors and our leaders in retreat, it was clear to all of us, I tell you the truth, it was clear to all of us that the Holy Spirit did indeed lead this congregation to vote this mission statement several years ago and that the new millennium would be the opportune time for this university church to rise up and embrace our God-given mission. I mean, this isn't just for community, faculty, students, community alike. Not under compulsion, but under conviction that the most important contribution we can make to the cause of Christ is to lift Christ up. Not the church. Lift Him up. And quite frankly, I can't think of a greater mission than this in all the world. Five components that can only be fulfilled if we lift Him up. I'll tell you a story. Maury Vanden. You know Maury Vanden. One of the great preachers, living preachers in our community of faith today. Maury Venom was on our campus just this last fall. We have on this campus the HMS Richards Lectureship on Preaching. Pastor Venom had been invited to give the lectures last fall. I was listening to them. 
He told a story about when he was, a, as, as a young pastor, sat on the front row of a convocation in which the great, I mean, the speaker of the voice of prophecy, one of the great biblical preachers and scholars of years gone by, H.M.S. Richards Sr., when, when Pastor Richards himself was on the platform and he was being interviewed and the interviewer finally came to the question when he, and, and Maury Vanden said, when he got to that question, I sat right up on the edge of my chair. I want to find out. This man who has researched the Scripture, preached his heart out all his life, how will he answer it? Here was the question. Sir, if you could sum up the message of the Adventist church, the message the Adventist church is to take to the world, how would you sum that message up? Richard paused for but a moment, then looked back and spoke two words. Jesus only. I want to tell you something, friends. That man of God was absolutely right. Both our mission and our message can be summarized. Two words only. Jesus. Jesus only. He is absolutely clear because I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to me. Forward on our knees by lifting Him up. Reading our lives by lifting Him up. Reflecting His love by lifting Him up. Reaching our world by lifting Him up. For the imminent return of Jesus by lifting Him up. Any way you want to put it, our mission is two words long. Jesus only. And if we put it that way, then we must live it that way. Jesus only. Holy Christ, it is because you were once lifted up before our eyes and our hearts that we were drawn to you. Dear Savior, please let the drawing that comes only from you and Calvary be the lifting up that we take to this world. This isn't our mission in the end. It is yours. We want you in the middle of it every step of this millennial journey until you come. We pray in your name. Amen.